It's opportunity, opportunity to study your word, opportunity to learn more about you, opportunity to repent of sin in our life and to receive the joy of the Lord and the seasons of refreshment that come from that. We pray that you would help us now to love you more from our time here and that you would help me to teach this clearly and dependent fully on you. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So two years ago, I did the same study at the church we were at in California. I didn't teach most of it, but I attended, and it was a blessing. And one of the things that I was so sad about, hold on, see if that's better. When we moved, and I really was grieved as I felt like I had run half a race. I'm like, I'm not going to get to do the second half, and I didn't get to hear it, and I was so truly heartbroken. And then God brought me to the church, and we did the same study. Like, it was just, it's just unbelievable how God has brought it back together, and it's been just as wonderful and just as rich to do this time around. And it just shows me, again, how deep God's word is, because I learned lots of new things this time, and I'm really looking forward, Lord willing, to the September when we go and start the New Testament, and I'll get to finish. And so, um, anyway, just excited, and as I was coming to this, I'm like, man, I can't believe, like, we're here again, and in September we get to continue, like I said, Lord willing, not presuming anything, but um, excited for this opportunity and how God brought this around. So as we start today, I want us just again quickly review what we learned last week with Ezra. Remember we said that Ezra and Nehemiah really are continued to be continued. That was our catchphrase. We're continued to be continued. God's kingdom promises and desire for a king are not over yet. And his desire for an intimate covenantal relationship with his people is also not over, right? And that's why he's brought them back into the land. What do I need to fix? Um, he's brought them back into the land, and he's brought them, he's told them to rebuild the temple, symbolizing his presence with them. And that even though all the covenant promises haven't happened, Daniel, the book of Daniel, we learned that the kingdom is still to come, the time's not yet, but God's going to keep his promises, and God loves his people, and God is faithful to them, and he's kind of initiating that by bringing them back into the land. And then we saw Haggai come and tell them, continue the work. Don't be let the opposition stop you. Finish the temple. And he also tells them, because remember they mourned that this was a smaller temple, and this wasn't going to have the glory of Solomon's temple. He says the latter glory is going to be greater than the first. This isn't the end of the story. This isn't the end of what I'm doing with my temple, but you are being faithful to what I've asked you to do, and I am pleased with that. This might seem small in your eyes. This might seem insignificant in your eyes, but it's what I've asked you to do, and I'm pleased with that. He had Haggai tell them that. And so we're going to pick up today with the other prophet who came during that same time to talk to them about the temple and rebuild the temple, Zechariah. So you can turn to the book of Zechariah. And I heard it described this way. If you think about Haggai as somebody who's um, sketched a picture, then think of Zechariah as the person who comes and puts all the color and fills it in. So he just takes what Haggai says and he expounds on it. He makes it bigger. And the key verse and the thing we have to remember in Zechariah, we see in Zechariah 1.3. In Zechariah 1.3, he says, Therefore, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your father, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways, from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes which I commanded, 
my servants the prophets? Did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. What is Zachariah saying? He's saying that you ha- I'm a, he's about to have a lot of visions. He's about to see a lot of glorious things for Israel's future. But before we get to those visions, Israel, you want to enjoy those blessings? You have to repent. You have to turn back to the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? They've died, right? And they died not following the Lord. And you, those p- false prophets that came, they're not here anymore. But what lasts? What endures? What was true? My words. My commands. Remember back in Genesis when we said God's kingdom, right, was God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. How did he rule? Through his good word. He gave a command, don't eat from the tree. Don't eat from the tree. And he continued to rule them through his word, through the prophets, through the covenant, through the law of Moses. God rules through his word. And all these ways that Israel's failed, they haven't lasted, but God's word has. So Israel, you need to return to me. And then God is going to show them all the things he remembers. Zechariah means God remembers. So Israel, God remembers his promises. And so we're going to come to these visions. And these visions are, here's your English lesson for the week. Maybe you remember this from high school or like a gen ed class in college. But these um, visions are raised as a chiasm. What's a chiasm? If you've ever read the book, if you give a mouse a cookie, that's a chiasm right? So if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want a glass of milk. And if you give him a glass of milk, he's going to want, and so on the story goes, he's going to want this and this and that until you get to the end where it goes. And if he does this, he's going to want a cookie. And if he wants a cookie, he's going to want a glass of milk to go with it. So the very end of the story parallels the very beginning. Or you could think of it like a sandwich, right? You have two pieces of bread. They parallel each other. And then you kind of have your mustard or whatever you like to put on your bread until you get to the meat. So the center of the chiasm, the center of these visions, that's the meat. That's the main point. And they all parallel each other. So the first two visions parallel visions 7 and 8. Vision 3 parallels vision 6. And then 4 and 5 are the center. And they parallel each other. So if you ever come back, that's how Zechariah's visions work. They're parallel. They're a chiasm. Just think, if you give a mouse a cookie, that's how it works. Okay? So, I know. But it, it's, it's true. Um, so... Here is what we're going to learn about what God remembers from these visions, okay? Because if we really went in this book in depth, one professor said, you're going to realize that God remembers things we never learned. (laughs) It's like, I didn't remember the Old Testament that well, and we're not going to get to look at it in that depth, but if you came back, that's what you'd see. God's telling them as they're about to go in these years of silence, I remember. And what we see in the first two visions are the horses. Remember these horses? And that should kind of, if you're familiar with your Bible, make you think about there are some horses in what other book of the Bible? Revelation right? Zechariah, I've not heard somebody official say this, so I felt a little nervous, but to me, Zechariah was like the revelation of the Old Testament. There are so many parallels, the horses, the visions. He sees so much of what's going to happen in Revelation. I feel like Revelation just really expounds on that and develops it more in depth. And so there's these horses, and these horses go out, and they just assess the state of the nations. And they come back, and they tell the Lord what's going on. And so when we get to the book of Revelation, we're supposed to connect it to, re- to Hezekiah, Zechariah, excuse me, and we're supposed to realize that what God promised here, it's happening now. So just tuck that away for next year. This is a promise about what God's going to do. When we see those horses in Revelation, the time is now, right? So he, time's not in Zechariah's time, but when we get to Revelation, the time is now. And then we can see the vision of the horns, okay? And that's the next right, next right there in chapter um, verse 18 of chapter 1. And the horns remind us of the book of Daniel. Remember, there were a lot of horns in Daniel, and they remind us of the nations, the four nations. 
And so the same thing is being said. My plan for the nations, I remember it. So I know what's happening in the world. I remember my plan for the nations, and I'm going to bring about that plan. And then the third vision is for Israel. So this is visions three and six are parallel. So look with me in verse 2-5. And it says, and I, okay, so in 2-5, there's a measuring man. He comes and he measures the city. And that should make us think Ezekiel, because that was the last time we saw this guy measuring the temple. All right, so he's measuring the, temp- the city, and it's going to be a huge city. And then in verse 5, it says, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Someday, Jerusalem, you're not going to be small anymore. You're going to be big. I'm going to remember you, and I'm going to remember Jerusalem, and I'm going to remember my temple, and it's going to be glory. My glory is going to fill it, okay? I'm going to remember, and I'm going to fill it, and, and you're not going to need walls because I'm going to be a fire around you that protects you. Remember, what does Israel mean? God fights for you. What did he want Jacob to understand? God fights for you. What has he said over and over again? They're to trust the Lord, and when this day comes, God's going to protect Israel. His glory is going to fill it. And then that should also, like I said, it connects us to Ezekiel and the temple. And what what do we learn from Ezekiel's temple? We learn that God has a plan and that he has a plan for Israel, for Israel to have new hearts where they're right with him. And he's going to keep that plan. There's going to be a new covenant, and it's going to change the nature of the people. And then we come to that meet, that vision in four. um, Oh, we're going to head to chapter six really quick. We're going to finish this vision of um, the glory that's going to be in Israel. And then, sorry, it is four. I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to see the king priest. Chapter four, we see this next vision that there's, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting my notes confused. It's the fourth and fifth visions, but it's the third chapter. So sorry, I got my numbers confused. We see the high priest. We see Joshua. He's dirty. He's filthy. And what does God do? He says, down in verse 10, and that day declares the Lord of hosts, every, um, I got ahead of myself. So God cleans him up. I'm sorry, I've, I, I've lost my spot. I was so confident I could get it. So um, he puts a clean turban, verse five, let them put a clean turban on his head. They put a clean turban on his head. They clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And he says to walk in his way and to keep his charge, right? And he says, behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Okay, for behold, a stone that I've set before Joshua, a single stone with seven eyes. I will engrave its descriptions, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. In a single day. He's going to take the priest. He's going to make this priest one who's going to clean the land in a single day. And that priest is going to be the branch. Now go to chapter 6. Because remember, 3 and 6 are parallel. And we learn more about this vision. Who is the one that's going to be this branch? We look in verse 9, and God has told Zedekiah that they're supposed to make a crown, right? And then in verse 11, it says, Take from them silver and gold, make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And we shall be saying, but the priest isn't the king. But the priest, you know, that's, that's not how this works. The priest isn't the king. And they say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch... He shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both, and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder. 
So what's happening? The branch is merging the priestly line and the Davidic line. The branch is the Messiah. And the Messiah is going to be the priest, the priest who can clean up the land in a single day. He'll be the true priest because he can make the people clean. And he'll be the true king because he can give true leadership. And so we see God remembers Israel. God remembers his covenant plan. God remembers his covenant with the priesthood. God remembers his covenant with David. And God is going to make the priest the king to rule. Okay, God remembers. And then we see in chapter 5, we're going to go back over, that there's that vision of the flying scroll. In the, the kind of what's, what's going on with the flying scroll? Well, read in chapter 5 in verse 4, I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stone. What's happening in the law of God, God rules by his good word, it's purifying the land. It's purifying the land of sin. It's going to clean it up. And so we see all these things that God remembers. In chapter 6, we also see that God remembers that Israel is sinful. Israel is a sinful nation, but God can save them. He remembers that too. And then when we come to those last visions, 7 8, we again we see that it's talking about the nations, just like the horses in 1 and 2 talk about the nations. In 7 and 8, it talks about the nations, but this time it's specific. It's a little girl in a basket, and she's being carried to Shinar. Shinar's Babylon. When you get to Revelation, she's not a little girl anymore. She's the whore of Babylon. There's just over and over and over again, tied to Revelation. So he see that God remembers all of his plans. He remembers everything he's going to do. He remembers that there's going to be a day of the Lord, like Joel said, a day of judgment, but also a day of restoration. God remembers. And so what is Israel supposed to do? Okay, if God remembers, if God's going to do all this, look with me in chapter 7, verse 5. The people would offer feasts in the fifth and seventh month to remember, sorry, they would fast, not feast. They would fast in the fifth and seventh month to remember the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. And so they say, oh, should we keep fasting as we've done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me and said, say to all the people of the land and the priest, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words of the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous and her cities around her in the south and the lowlands were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. What are we supposed to do while we wait? We're supposed to obey the law that is supposed to be ruling over us. You're supposed to be faithful to the covenant. You're supposed to persevere in the waiting, and you're supposed to obey. And then the chapters also show us, you flip over to chapter 9. Remember, in Daniel, we learned that we're in the era of the Gentiles right now. But even in the era of the Gentiles, God is remembering his plan. And we see that because God is going to send somebody, right? During the era of the Gentiles, he's going to send the Messiah. Look in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then verse 10, I will cut, and I'm not going to even go into verse 10 because you're going to see how he's going to rule and how he's going to bring about his covenant, but that part hasn't been fulfilled yet. We've only seen through verse 9 happen. Why? Because the people didn't receive their king, did they? Right? They rejected their king. They didn't want him, and they crucified him. But again, we see that there's going to be hope. 
Turn to verse 12, chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over the firstborn. On that day, the mourning of Jerusalem will be great, right? The mourning's gonna be great, but that's gonna lead them to repentance. That's gonna lead them to changed lives. And we're not gonna go through it, but there's so many I wills the Lord says he will do. But jump to verse 13, and he says, they will call on my name and I will answer them. Chapter 13, verse nine, sorry, end of it. They will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. God remembers, even in the time of the Gentiles, God is going to keep his plan. He's going to fulfill it. So don't lose heart. So that happens and then, now we'll flip to Nehemiah. Our second point, my points basically are Zechariah, two, Nehemiah, three, Malachi. And remember, Nehemiah is, just like Ezra, it's continued to be continued. They've rebuilt the temple, they're rebuilding the temple, but they haven't built the walls. And so just like rebuilding the temple was to remind them that God's presence was going to be with them, no walls, no defenses, no ruddy ruling from the capital reminds them they don't have a king. There's no king right now. And so Nehemiah comes, and he rebuilds the wall, and it puts up an important spiritual, physical boundary that becomes a spiritual boundary. We can't be like these other nations that they, we saw in the lesson they keep intermarrying with, right? But it, there's also this reminder as the chapter, the, uh, this chapter of the, well, the Old Testament's really closing, as it closes, that the covenants continue to be continued because there's no king. There's no king who's making this happen. There's no king who's ruling. When Nehemiah goes back, people follow a fault, you know, the high priest into more sin. There isn't the right king. There isn't the right king to put up the defenses. So we're looking for that covenant to be continued. But I love Nehemiah. I love him for so many reasons. And I loved him more as I learned it again. In the book Creation of the Cross, Albert Bayless says this about him. He says, always a man of prayer, he turns to God. He admits Israel's weaknesses, but focuses on God's promise of deliverance and prays for success. Always a man of action, he successfully seeks from Artaxerxes a leave of absence along with supplies for rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Always a man of prayer, always a man of action. And I love that picture together, that he depends on the Lord, but he does what God calls him to do. In fact, over and over in Nehemiah, there are just these little one-sentence or two-sentence prayers where he just, he's having a problem and he turns to the Lord. And we're going to look at a few of those. Turn to Nehemiah 4.4. 4. So they come to rebuild the wall. And in Nehemiah 4.4, the people are opposing him. Seven times the people oppose him. They mock that him. They mock him more. They try to assassinate him. They try to attack them. They try to send false prophets to get him to go into the temple, right? They false peop pay people to falsely prophesy. They write letters lying and slandering about him, trying to say he's starting an insurrection. Seven times they come against him in the walls. Read verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not one sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. Man of prayer, man of action. And then look in verse 9. In verse 9 it says, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Man of prayer, man of action. And then flip over to 519. It says, remember for, my, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Just one sentence prayer again, but also referencing that he had been doing what God told him to do. Man of action, man of prayer. 614, he says, 
Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Nobadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And then in verse 15, so the wall was finished. Man of prayer, man of action. And he calls the people to obedience, and and I'm just going to list because we, we looked in the lesson, but they're just consistently disobedient. They intermarry with the heathen people, so much so that their children can't read Hebrew or speak their language. They fail to keep the Sabbath. That was God's covenant sign with them. So they're, they're hating the covenant when they don't keep the Sabbath. They fail to provide for the needs for temple worship. They don't offer true worship to God. They don't want to worship God, right? They fail to recognize God's right to the firstborn. They fail to tithe. And then again, Albert Bayless says, how often is spiritual growth dependent on a willingness to be specific and honest about weakness? We really want to see spiritual growth. You know, these aren't just general. Um, he's being very specific in the sins of the people. They're not general. And it made me think about, I've told you before I've had thyroid cancer. And if you know anything about the thyroid, which I didn't before I had thyroid cancer, I didn't even know there was a thyroid, I learned it controls your metabolism. And so, and when you're pregnant, it's a, anyway, without getting into all the details, when you're pregnant, your hormones are always changing. Your thyroid, when you don't have one, can't regulate it. And I didn't gain, like, the 25 recommended pounds. Let's just leave it there. And so after I had my kids, I had to work really, really hard to get the weight off. And it was a huge struggle for me. And I remember thinking, that's it. I'm going to get help. I'm going to join Weight Watchers. So I joined Weight Watchers. And the most helpful thing that I learned in Weight Watchers was to journal everything you eat, to write it all down. And there's actually a lot of studies saying that people who lose weight and keep weight off write down what they eat. You have to be specific. And when you're not getting success, you have to be able to take your journal in and get help. And if you haven't journaled accurately what you've eaten or what you're really doing, you're not going to get real help, are you? Because they're not going to know what you're doing. You had to be specific. And I just thought that there, to me, I'm like, that's the same with our sin. We can say, oh, I struggle with pride. That's really, really broad. We all struggle with pride. Do you struggle with pride because you're too sensitive or because you have to control things? Or because you want to please people so they always like you and so you say yes to everything you're asked to do. Or you won't spend your time at all because your time's really precious and you can't be inconvenient. Pride shows itself in a million ways. If you're not specific about it, you're really not going to kill it. And we could say that about pick a sin, right? <laughs> we could say that about anger. We could say that about if you want to, be to, be to kill sin, we have to be specific. Israel wanted instant su success. And I'm like, wow, how is that is like us. They want the covenant now. They want the king now. They want the promises now. And they don't want to be obedient and faithful while they wait. Right? They want the promises now. And so God is testing them. Again, Bala says here, God tested Israel's response and faithfulness, not in a great battle, but in a struggling situation where his own activity seems less than spectacular. Right, this isn't the era of great miracles like with Moses or Elijah or Elisha. This is like build the temple and my prophets will encourage you, but these people, they're really discouraging. They're trying to kill you. They're trying to assassinate you. And there's no like, you remember when Sennacherib came and the angel of the Lord like wiped out the army overnight? Yeah, that doesn't happen this time. It's be faithful in the everyday. That's, you see that on the book of Esther, right? God's providential care even when there aren't the miraculous signs. So, are we women, like Nehemiah, who we have such a deep prayer life, that as we're dealing with our life, women of prayer and women of action, 
I remember, too, being in Bible study, and um, a friend was answering a question, and she shared that she'd been really convicted because, you know, those times as a mom, um, you're, like, in the kitchen doing dishes, and you hear the fight start. <laughs> you're not there yet. They haven't come to you to tell, but you know the conflict's on its way. Or you hear the whatever happened in my house there and in the basement, and you hear the screeches starting, and you're like, oh, here it comes. And she said I, I, she was really convicted because she never started praying for her kids right then. She we just went into, like, who needs to be disciplined? Who did what wrong? Like, fix the problem. And she's like, I started praying for God to give them self-control in that moment, for them to have tender hearts for me when I respond. And I was like, wow, I wonder how parenting would be different if I did that. <laughs> like, and I just thought, but that's what Nehemiah is doing. I'm being opposed. Lord, strengthen my hand. I'm being opposed. Lord, remember me. I'm being and so I just think how, uh, that's just one example for me in the middle of parenting. How often are we looking and dealing with our everyday situations and prayer is just what's coming out? Dependency on God in all the little things, faithfulness in all the little moments. That's who we have to be. We have to be dependent. He who's faithful and little will be trusted with much, right? We have to be faithful in those moments when no one's looking. You know what else we see about Nehemiah? Turn to 2.18. And, we, and I d we don't have time to go through this. It's all through Ezra and it's all through Nehemiah. I'm taking you to one verse, but I could have taken you probably to 10 or 15. We're going to look at Nehemiah 2.18. In 2.18, he says, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And over and over again, they say the hand of the Lord was upon us for good. If you want to trust the Lord and you want to stand up to people like he did, you have to be convinced of the goodness of God. You're not going to trust a God you don't believe isn't good. You have to be convinced of his goodness. Psalm 84.11, No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. And it's not just that he doesn't withhold good from us. He gives us what's best. He doesn't keep good from your life, and he gives you what is best for your life. He is generous, and he doesn't give you what's okay. He gives you what's best. So when that thing happens, you really wanted it, and it didn't happen. You can trust in God's goodness that it was best. It was best for you. And when the thing happens that you really wanted, then you can trust that was God's best too. And God is good either way, right? Do we just receive good from the Lord and not also trouble with it, Job says. You have to trust that God is good. He doesn't keep good from your life, and he gives what is best. And if you, that's, I think, where the battle, for, at least in my life, for me, that's where the battle comes for trust. In my situation, am I trusting that this is good and God isn't keeping good for me? And that's where you, ha I think that's where you have to wrestle. There, there's more to it. I don't want to simplify it. But God is good, and Ezra and Nehemiah believed that. In all the opposition, in all the sin of the people, in all the conflict, the hand of my God is upon me for good. And they could stand firm. We have to believe in God's goodness. Well, really quick, before we jump into Malachi, um, I just want to pull together 2 Kings to Malachi. I want us to leave with one big review, one big picture of how it comes together. I was listening again to Professor Chow teach his Old Testament class. So thankful he makes that available online. And he did this in like five minutes and I just typed. So I'm just going to pass it on to you. This is from Abner Chow because I just thought, even if I could pull us together, I could never make it this succinct. All right? So in First and Second Kings, we see that there is a kingdom promise. Yet there's no human only. You know, obviously there'll be a human and divine king that can fulfill it. And we also see in Kings that God rules by his word. He keeps sending the prophets. Remember, all the kings and the prophets, they, they parallel each other. He sends the prophets and the law to tell the people how they're to be obedient. And as they come to the end of the book, 
in Kings, God reminds them, even though they're in exile, even though their king is in exile, the Davidic line has continued on. It has not been wiped out. It's not been killed. The kingdom promises are coming. And he reminds at the end of Chronicles, my presence is still with you. Rebuild the temple. It's continued to be continued. And then we have the prophet Obadiah. And Obadiah explains what God's doing because the people are saying, look, even Edom. Edom was the one nation we always got victory over. Remember, Jacob have I lo loved, Esau have I hated. Even Edom's triumphing over us. Are these, do you care what the nations are doing to us? Are you going to keep your promises? And Obadiah says, yes, God cares, and God is going to have vengeance on those who persecute you. The day of the Lord is coming on all nations. And then the book of Joel comes on the scene, and Joel shows that God is powerful. He is powerful, and he is going to judge. There's a locust plague that shows that. He teaches us more about the day of the Lord, but he adds to it and says, God is going to pour out his spirit, right? There's a day of judgment for all the nations. God remembers Israel, but he's also going to have, you repent, he'll pour out his spirit. And then Jonah comes, and he reminds us that that grace, it's not just for Israel. It's for the Gentiles, too. Repent and turn to the Lord, and God's spirit will be poured out on you, right? And then Amos comes and says, because Israel's saying, I think God's judgment's too hard. I think it's not fair. And Amos comes and says, God is fair, even in judgment and turmoil. He gives opportunity to repent, and remember we saw that he's going to restore the tent of David. The kingdom promises are still happening. And then Hosea comes, and it covers God's great love, love even in judgment, right? Remember the picture of Hosea and Gomer, his wife, who's a prostitute, who keeps returning to prostitution. And what do we say when we get married? Till death do us part, right? So God uses this, um, this marriage an analogy to say that he loves Israel even in judgment, but his love, it goes beyond that analogy. It goes beyond death because he says he's going to raise them from the dead, both individually and nationally, so that in the end, their relationship will be perfected. God does love Israel, even in judgment. Make no mistake, it's a love that goes beyond even death. And then Isaiah comes on the scene, and he says, Israel, you have a sin problem, and you need salvation. And that salvation is procured only by the suffering of the servant, who is the perfect Israelite, the substitutionary one, that will generate a new heaven and a new earth. And then Micah, he's the street preacher. Isaiah's preaching in the, t in the temple courts, and at the same time, Micah's the street preacher, and he has the same language and message of Isaiah. And he says, your leaders and your prophets fail you, but God will not. God will not fail you. He was going to do everything to raise up a new David. And Micah's name means who is like the Lord, and the answer is there is no one like the Lord. You need to put your trust in him. He's going to crush the nations like he's going to crush the serpent, but he is one who brings forgiveness. And then Nahum comes, and Nahum, he gets Jonah's wish. Remember, Jonah wanted the Ninevites wiped out? Well, in Nahum's time, God does wipe out Nineveh by a great flood. And it's this mini picture of what he will do on the day of the Lord. Just like he judged the Assyrians in Nineveh, that's what he's going to do on the day of the Lord. So we need to repent. He also shows us that everything that God promised in Isaiah, it's going to happen. Remember in Isaiah, it says, Blessed, is he who brings good, blessed are the feet of him who brings good news. Nahum has, says the same thing. What God said in, in Isaiah, here's a little mini picture. It's going to happen. It's going to come true. And then Zephaniah, you remember the hidden treasure of the Lord? He's like, Israel's saying, what? Okay, so we're going in exile, and I guess you're doing these things, but what good can really come out of this? And God says, what good can come out of this? I'm going to purify you. And ultimately, I'm going to sing over you. Only time in the Bible that God's mentioned is singing. I'm going to sing over you. That's what my, this purification can produce. And then Habakkuk says, you're going into exile. You need to learn how to live in exile. Just like Abraham and everything was started, 
by the just shall live by faith, that's the key verse in Habakkuk. Even in exile, even as we restart, the just shall live by faith. And then Ezekiel comes to the people who are in judgment, and he proclaims that God has not abandoned them. He is with them, and he has promised that ultimately he'll not just live with us, but he's going to live in us. And that's the new covenant promise. And when the new covenant comes, it ensures that he will dwell in us, corporately among us, and that his glory is going to fill the earth. That's where we're going. That's where history is going. And Jeremiah says, yes, that's true, but right now you're in exile, and right now you're suffering. Don't fight God's plan. Submit to God's plan. Submit to his sovereignty. And then Daniel says, and God has a plan for the nations. He has a plan for you, Israel, but it's not yet. He's going to use these nations for the time of the Gentiles. So you need to continue to trust him even as you suffer. And Esther shows God works in ordinary means, providential care to care for his people. God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther. Prayer is not mentioned in the book of Esther. Miracles don't happen in the book of Esther. And yet God's people are saved from being wiped out. God is in control of everything. He providentially works to bring about his plan. And then we just looked at Ezra and Nehemiah. Continue to be continued. There's no temple and there's no king, but there will be. I'm bringing you back to the land and rebuild this temple. It's not the ultimate temple, but rebuild it because I'll be with you. And Haggai says it doesn't matter if you have a big temple right now. What matters is that you're obedient, and God will bring about the greater glory that will come. And Zechariah says God remembers. All these things are going to happen, so everything is pointing us to the future. Do you see how the book of the Old Testament really ends on a cliffhanger? The story is so clearly not over. There's still so much more to come, and everything is pointing to looking forward. And that brings us to the last book, Turn to Malachi. If you don't know where Malachi is, turn to Matthew, and then turn back just a little bit. Go to Malachi, and this is the last message, the last prophet's message. Malachi means my messenger, and that's the whole point of the book, that God is going to send his messenger. And he's rebuking the people for their sins. In chapter 1, the people are offering wrong sacrifices. Remember, they're bringing the blind, the lame, the weak, the sick animals for sacrifice. They don't truly worship God. They're just going through the motions. And, God sa- and so God's saying, I love you, and the plan isn't stalled, but you have to be accountable to me. You have to repent. Things have to be right. You have to respect me. And it's not just me. You have to love God, and you have to love people. In chapter 2, we see that they aren't loving the people. In chapter 10, he says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? The people were divorcing each other wrongly, God hates divorce. He hates how they were treating each other wrongly. And then the people say that God's words are wearisome to them in 3.1, right? And God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That messenger is going to be John the Baptist. The the story is ending with, you've got to be looking for the one who's going to announce the kingdom, the one who's going to announce the Messiah. You're getting lazy while you wait but the promises are happening. And then he exhorts the people to repent. He says it's not in vain that they serve them. And in 4, 4 through 6, he says to watch for that messenger. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb and Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of their father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So again, we end with the law. What are we supposed to do while we wait? God rules us through his good word. 
We have to be women of the word, and it has to rule in our life. If we want to have victory over sin in our life, we're going to have to be specific about it. We have to be faithful in little things. And you know, in Malachi, and I skipped over it a little bit, but it talks a lot about how they were withholding the tithe, right? In chapter, if you were to read chapter um, 3, verse 8, it says, will man rob God? You are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. And it goes on to talk about how they can trust God to provide for them. And that's what they were doing when they offered the wrong sacrifices. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. They didn't worship God, and so they were giving him the worst. And they, were ho- they loved themselves, and so they were holding back for themselves. What do we treasure? What we treasure is going to direct our life. It's going to direct how we live. And uh, one of the things, I rem- if you remember the bulletin insert, back in August when we were doing the Bible study, we said was, is the God of the Old Testament wrathful? Or is he a good God? It was one of the things, like, is that a question you have? And we can answer that in this study. I hope as we've come to the end right now, all you can say is, God is faithful. God is good. God is the creator. God is gracious. In fact, if you turn um, back to Exodus, and now I'm going to blank on it, I think it's Exodus 34, right? The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in goodness, gracious, faithful, giving kindness to thousands of generations, right? But who will by no means clear the guilty. Those attributes of God, they just permeate the whole Old Testament. They're everywhere that God is sending a Savior, that God's going to redeem you. So hopefully as we finish this, we have this beautiful view of God because if we don't see God as beautiful and glorious and holy and to be feared, then any obedience that we do is just legalism. It's just trying to earn favor with God. But if we see God for his glory and we worship him for who he is and we obey out of that love for him, then we're being faithful in what he's called us to be. So as we go into this summer, make a plan for studying the Bible, right? It's really um, wonderful to have this accountability, and I need it in my life. But you don't want to be faithful in this. That's our next test. That's the small thing we get to see. Are we going to be faithful to read? So make a plan. And when we come back together next week for our fellowship, tell your small group your plan. Memorize the, get ahead on, we're memorizing Ephesians 1 through 2.10. Get ahead on memorizing. Last year, my sister, make it fun. Last year, my sister um, issued a memorization challenge to all the nieces and nephews. And I don't remember what it was, but she said, if you memorize X amount of verses, I'll pay you X amount of dollars. And she picked the verses, and they had to take, we had a video of the kids saying it once they'd memorized it, and then they all, and then grandma and Grandpa heard about it, and they said, we'll match what Aunt Beck Beck will pay you. And so the kids were like, yay! Memorize it with your kids. Issue a family challenge. We're going to memorize Ephesians 1 this summer. See how many people want to do it with you. See how much fun you can have with it. I have so many studies I could point you to to do. Like Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah was a study that this same EWG group that we take our lessons from did. I could give you the links, and you could go in those books in depth if you wanted to. There are so many things you could do. Make a plan. Share it with your small group. Do it not because you're checking a box, because we have beheld God and the Messiah and his promises, and they're amazing, right? They're glorious. And so be faithful this summer. And when we see each other, have intentional conversations. Ask each other how it's going throughout the summer. Don't just keep following up. Keep asking each other. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for these women. Thank you for the beauty of the Messiah, for the beauty of your word. Thank you for your goodness. Help us to be faithful in the little things. Help us to be obedient and help us to love you more every day, that every day we grow in our sanctification. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. You're welcome.